Now, I had a real tough time with this sermon. Anybody who talked to me this week about my sermon, which by the way, I've already warned you, don't talk to me this week about my sermon because it was a hodgepodge of what it could be. But I had a real tough time. Um, if you look at the, the Westminster Catechism, it talks about the resurrection. It talks about Easter. And when was Easter? Last week. Right? So we have a tough time. I had a tough time um, uh, talking about the resurrection, though it's, it's actually within church, good church order to keep talking about the resurrection and its importance. Because it's not something you're supposed to just leave on the shelf. You're supposed to keep it on the table and talk about the importance of the resurrection. So I wrestled with, what can I offer you that I didn't already offer you in my most stellar sermon that I preached last week? Right? All right, amen. I wrestled with it. And then it dawned on me, what did I need to hear the most? This is, this is what, I, what, what I wrestled with. Um, when I read uh, theology and I read uh, certain parts of scripture, I wrestle with the transaction. I hate to use financial language. You guys know that. Or at least if you talk to me enough, you know that I know. I don't like talking just solely about financial language when we talk about what Christ has done for us. But I can't think of any other way to describe uh, what has happened with the resurrection. It is a transaction that, that has happened, that we benefit from someone else's resurrection. I don't understand that well. I mean, I always kind of lose grasp of it. Does anyone ever have that concept in their mind whenever they really think they got a hold of something and then time slips by and then someone asks them about that concept, whatever it may be, and you are asked of it and you're like, oh, oh, I knew what it was. I knew how this works. I'm talking about how metaphysically we are saved in his resurrection. Just one man. And it forced me back into reworking that muscle. Just like atrophy. You lose, and you stop working out, you stop getting strong, and you start to get weak. So I had to rework that muscle. That is what happened. So, can we go back to uh, probably 22, verse 22, and I'll hone in on what I'm going to be preaching on. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then it dawned on me whenever I was really wrestling with how to preach this passage. By the way, this is a huge chunk of scripture. There's so much to this that we could talk about this to, to, to we're blue in the face. And, and maybe we should. All right, cancel everything you got for the rest of the day. We're going to talk about this until we're blue in the face. No. I'm honing in on the second Adam concept. I'm honing in on what it means that Jesus was the second Adam. And so let us take you back. Let us, uh, let's go back a bit. Adam and Eve in the garden, Adam was created, and he was called good, good. Not just good, like, hey, it's good. I'm talking about it was good, good. The word uh, in the Hebrew uh, doesn't necessarily, it means like much good. Like, it, we can't, like, we don't translate it well. So it was, the way is, is when God looks at Adam and Eve, the Jewish tradition calls it good, good. Because they can't, they can't say perfect. It doesn't say perfect. It says good, good. It means like super good. You know, and you can't write it in the Bible without it sounding really goofy. So they just say good or good, good. And um, so that's, that's what Adam was uh, created. And of course, we know a couple chapters later what happened. The fall. The fall happened. 
And, and we can't talk about sin without talking about the fall. We can't talk about how uh, we know of God's goodness and his saving power without talking about how sin entered the world, right? With much sin that came from one man's act that entered the world comes the sanctification of one good act of what Jesus has done. Now, we'll put, we'll put Jesus aside for a second, which I hope I don't ever do often. I hope I do that very seldom, but... For right now, let's talk about Adam. Let's talk about what God was doing through Adam and then on through the whole Old Testament. That's right. I plan to break down the whole Old Testament in this sermon. Everyone with me? You okay? Now, this sermon, I promise you, won't be long. I hope it won't be long because it could go very long if I break down the Old Testament. So realize I'm going to skip a lot of stuff. Okay? So after, after uh, Adam comes... Uh, 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 many different events, but then we see Abraham. You know, of course, in between that is Cain and Abel and all these different things. But you see Abraham. This is the first time that God spoke outwardly to his people, written in the Old Testament, to Abraham directly outside of Noah. Meaning that he started elaborating his plan to Abraham. And what is the plan that I've always told you? I know the plan that I have for you, is what he says. In, in, in short, he says, I'm, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky, sky as numerous as the sands of the sea. You're going to have a promised land. And you're going to be my, I'm going to be, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. Right? There's a bunch of other promises that you see in the midst of that. But you see this, this plan that God starts initiating. Right? And then, then what happens? You get Isaac, then the twelve. Right? Uh, Isaac, Jacob, and then you got the twelve. Jacob being the second born. Now there's going to be uh, beautiful stuff about that. But you see this tradition, this, this sense of the second born. Isaac was the second born to Abraham. Jacob was the second born to Abraham. The second Adam. Whoa! You get it? You start seeing the second. Not the first born of all creation, but the second. Start coming up. So whenever God starts creating this illustration, not just an illustration, these are actual people, but whenever he starts working out his salvation plan, he works it out through, not the firstborn, the firstborn of impossible circumstance. By the way, Sarah, 90 years old, Abraham's wife, 90-some years old. Um, there's some women here that I know would say, that is crazy. Or not, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> right? That's insane to think through that. And then, and then uh, uh, Jacob, where, where he begins to, uh, where he was born as the second from Isaac, and of course he, you see a lot of what? Sin. Jacob starts sinning a lot. You start seeing the second born start living into the first Adam. Okay, so that, that happens. And you got the twelve, the twelve carry up, and then you got Joseph, and you got Joseph taking that, that, that stuff. And uh, go into Egypt and start blessing his brothers and, uh, and his family, right? You get that, that notion. Then you got the Joseph uh, bringing people in Egypt and being built up. Then brought into slavery. 400 and, was it 450 years? Something like that, 435. It's a very, very particular number. I just read it. I should have it on the top of my head, but I don't, and I apologize. But that's where we're at. It's 400 and some years, particular number. Um, one thing, if you read the Old Testament enough, you start realizing that God is a God of particularity. He's not like, yeah, sure. Much like I'm often doing up here from the pulpit. 
he, he's, no, it's 435 years or 400 whatever. This is where it's at. It's, if you want to look and you can reprove me right now, it's the beginning of Exodus. You have uh, uh, God working through them and they spent all this time in slavery, bound to slaves, being slaves, right? We know that. And then we have Moses comes and he, he frees them. And we have this great liberator. And then he takes them through the Red Sea. And then once he takes them through the Red Sea, he takes them through the desert for 40 years, right? You everyone with me here? Now, what is happening on the midst of that? By the way, at the very beginning, uh, whenever uh, uh, Moses comes down off of Mount Sinai, God gets very angry and says, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill Moses because of his disobedience. It's a real short sentence. But you still even see, you still even see in the salvation history, God's angry with their sin. And he was going to kill Moses. He said, no, he didn't. He squashed his anger. But you see Moses living out of the first Adam, the sinfulness. Even though he was living out the salvation plan, salvation history, he was still living a certain level of sin. And you've seen that definitely when they were in the desert. Because Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land, right? And Aaron, oh my goodness, Aaron, they, he sinned all night. But yet he was, one of the, he was the first priest. He was the first ordained type priest. The one who would mediate the presence of God to his people would be Aaron. Everyone with me? Everyone hear me on this? And then the next part of the story is, is they get to go into the promised land, but yet it's not their land yet. They got to go, and they got to take it from the people who reside there. Now, that's a lot, of, a lot of tension in modern day about what goes on there, but let's just use what the illustration of the scriptures talk about in terms of Joseph leading the people to, their, to, to freedom in that land. And, and you see a lot of freedom. But if you, if you take a look at a map, and you look at what Joseph has done, you know one thing. You learn one major thing about it. He doesn't take all the land that's given to him. Do you know that? He really only takes the center part of Israel. He doesn't take it all. God says, take it. And he doesn't take it. He'll, he just, they, they just begin to start settling in, building homes, and residing. So you even see with Joshua not trusting God enough to take all that's given to him, all the blessing, living into the blessing, even then, Joshua lives into the first Adam. Right? And then uh, the, the, you got the tabernacle and you got the, the priests the, living out uh, into this. And uh, they begin to start bifurcating their religious worship. And then we have the judges, right? What's the judges do? Calls out idolatry, calls out how they have pulled away from their God and makes a judgment, a proclamation that this is wrong and then goes and picks up a sword. You want to see some of the most bloodiest, gruesome part of the Bible, you go to Judges. Pretty gruesome. But even then, oh, I mean, you got some great stories. But even then, you got stories of people who, at the end of their great triumph, go and begin to worship something false. You, you see them always going back, living out of their first Adam life. You see what I'm saying here? There's goodness and there's sin. Then what's next? Uh, you got the, the great pro, uh, pr, uh, priest, Samuel, anoints Saul. What happens with Saul? I don't, we don't have to dwell too long on that. He lives mightily out of the first, first Adam. Immediately jumps to that first Adam. 
almost. He puts himself as a priest at one point. He allows himself, he thinks that he's going to mediate God's presence. And God uh, punishes him and then anoints David king, the great king. And what we know about David is, is that he was a great king. He actually took those lands that Joshua chose not to take. He actually expanded the kingdom. He united all of these tribes. He united the twelve. And then he killed a man, an innocent man. And he slept with his wife. Right? He lived into this first Adam business. Still did some great stuff. And then you got Solomon, you got all these other kings, and boy, once you start reading first and second kings, you really start getting depressed about how sinful they all get. You get some good stories about with Elijah and Elisha. You get some good stories of, of, of Micaiah and Emla and all these great, great people that have been faithful. You, you get great stories. But you always see them living into the first Adam life, right? It's like the story. The Old Testament is the story of the first Adam. And then you get these great stories of the prophets coming in and standing in the midst of everybody and being like, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, go back to your Lord. And then those same prophets go back and be like, oh, oh, how could you let me out there, Lord? Oh, they start whining to God. That happens often. Just read Jeremiah. Jeremiah's a... a an incredibly whiny prophet. Because he does something amazing. And is surprised that people don't like it. <laughs> and he goes back and exposes his lack of trust of God. It just happens over and over and over again. So not only do you have someone who's doing something amazing by speaking to the kings and the, the, the priests and the, the, the prophets of the day and saying some amazing things, they still go and live out of this first Adam reality. And what happens? These prophets, their prophecies come to fruition and they lose the promised land. They remain in exile. And we think that because of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, that they are allowed to be back in the promised land. But you've got to know something about that. You need to know something incredible about that. No Jew ever thought they were back fully. They never felt good about the, them reigning in that land. Why? They always had a government over top. They always had a structure that was not Jewish over top of them. Did you know that? After Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, they were allowed to live in their land. And it wasn't God, though. It was, whether it was Syria, Medes, Persians, Rome, Greek, they were just allowed to exist. Did you know that? And they were always under the thumb of someone. Brody has. He knew that. That's where this is at. They did not experience salvation in the Old Testament. Did you know that? The Old Testament people, the story doesn't end right. The story doesn't end good. So, you have a, a, a litany. Okay, that was, by the way, that's the Old Testament, in a nutshell. A lot of stories in between, right? You miss a lot of names, a lot of great stuff, 
But that's it in a nutshell, at least the major thing that I'm drawing out. And you have them always living out of the first Adam. So what's going on with the second Adam? What's going on with Jesus Christ? Well, what happens as soon as he's born? What happens? He's, he's blessed. People come to see him. But he has to hightail it to Egypt. Do you know that? So you have this promise in, in, in uh, uh, Nazareth. You have this promise in Bethlehem, uh, Nazareth then to Bethlehem, of this, this man who's going to be the Messiah, who's going to be the salvation, a blessing to all people, who's going to truly bring you into the promised land, who's truly going to save you. You have it laid on this kid, just like that promise was for Abraham, right? I hope you see what I'm doing here. I'm not hiding it at all. You have it happening in Jesus. But then what happens is he has to take off to Egypt. You know that? He, had a, he, that, uh, he was rushed to Egypt. Much like who? The Israelites. Under Moses. Well, before Moses, under Joseph. And he stayed down there for a period of time. Until he was an older boy. Until it was safe for him to come back. Until God granted him to come back. And then he went into the temple as a young boy and he taught, he learned. It's this example of the Israelites learning about their identity because you see whenever they were in Egypt they, were, they knew themselves as an ethnicity apart from Egypt. But they didn't know much about their God. Do you know the Ten Commandments didn't exist? These things didn't exist. How to worship, how to... to, to to be a priestly notion or anything like that didn't exist. And so what Jesus was doing while he was in Egypt and while he was a young boy was learning who God was. Now, I believe that Jesus is God, but I believe he's also a man. And to be fully man, you have to learn how to walk and you have to learn how to eat and you have to learn how to learn. And that's what we had, what's what you have with Jesus. As much as he was a God, in that moment, he was still a baby. And he still had to rely upon the breast milk and upon learning how to walk and on all those things. He had to do as a baby. And we know this to be true. He skinned his knee as much as you or I ever did. I think we think of him as whenever he goes to fall, he just, he just hovered. And he didn't actually fall. Right? No, he fell. Why not? Jesus knew. Why not? And then we have this scenario where... When Jesus was learning, he was able, he was learning at the, on the knee of his mother, uh, his father, and I'm sure uh, he would spend time with some relatives. And you have a scenario where he sits there on his father, uh, at, the, at the steps, and he knows so much about his God that he calls him my father. He says, don't you know I'm supposed to be in my father's house whenever he was teaching? He was 13. 13. Maddie, you're next. You've got to preach. You're five years behind, right? Seven, four years behind. That's crazy, right? I mean, that's, that's a, a, an amazing thing. That's precisely what the first Adam did. You know that? As soon as they were coming out, of, coming out of Egypt, they were learning who their God was. They saw him as a form of a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. They saw him as laws, and they saw him as uh, sacrifices and, 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 and offering gold to him. They saw him as that. And what did they do whenever they began to do that? They began to run away from that and make a nice cow god and start worshiping other gods, living out of that first Adam, where Jesus didn't do that. Jesus, by learning who his God was, 
responded with his whole heart, mind, body, and soul in saying, I have to be in my father's house. That is the second Adam stuff that we talk about. And then he goes on. And he goes and gets baptized. And as he's being, like, much like the Israelite being brought out of, the, the, out of Egypt, he goes through the Red Sea, where his pursuer is no longer there. Meaning this, the, the, the concept of what he was doing in his baptism. You've heard me preach on this before. He was baptizing a baptism of repentance, a baptism that you can only do in part. He doesn't pull. He begins to unite with us as a human being. He repents for something he never needed to repent for. He repented for you and he repented for me. He starts living into that first Adam reality. He starts seeing, by being human, he starts solidarity, with solidarity living with you, with us, with me. And then he goes into the desert, much like the Israelites. For 40 years, he went for 40 days and he spent where the Israelites Beg God for food and beg God for water. Oh, God. And God's like, I'll give you water. I'll give you food. You're going to have quail coming out of your nose. That's how much food. You're going to see it as a curse because you don't trust me. We have Jesus Christ who stands in the midst of the desert, didn't drink, didn't eat, and was tempted by the devil. The Israelites kept falling away from that, kept living into that first Adam when the second Adam lived it faithfully. Then he comes back and he starts living as a prophet. He comes into the center of, of the temple and he says, look how wrong is he? He kicks over stuff. He starts living into this reality of holiness that the prophets do. But does he go back and complain? No. In the midst of his deepest trial, he says, not my will, but your will be done. Second Adam. The goodness of the second Adam. And so whenever he's living out that prophecy, whenever he's living out being a prophet and speaking the truth to amidst the, in the midst of lies, being scorned, sometimes being stoned, he doesn't respond out of being first, uh, out of the first Adam. He lives as the second Adam. Everyone with me? We'll keep going. On the Hosea, Palm Sunday, where they were throwing down their jackets and they were throwing down their palms and they were treating them as what? The coronation. That was a coronation of a king on Palm Sunday. They were treating him as king. Not like David. Certainly not like Saul. He responds. Not living into that. That was a week before his death and he chose to keep going towards Father's faithfulness by what the Father wanted for him. This is where we have. This is the second Adam living into this. And then he brings us into the promised land through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is of course, after the fact, but we have this sense of how he is also a judge and how he is also being like Joshua and how he is bringing us into the promised land. Not like the, the, the Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther where we're still under the thumb of some sort of earthly king. But we are under the king of the universe, Jesus Christ. He brings us to himself. He brings us to him. And whenever he did that, he did it not out of being first Adam. He did it out of being the second Adam. He did it without sin. 
Amen. So my question to myself, and it might be the question to you, is this. How do we benefit from that? How do we benefit from this God who lived the story of salvation, but never sinned? He lived every single detail of the Israelites. Every single detail. And didn't sin. How do we benefit from that? We benefit it from because he died. He did not deserve to die. And because he died, and because he rose again, death has no power over those who are in the second Adam. He speaks about it in John 3.16 and on and on and on through that, that, that section about being born again. The concept not so much that you need to go and be baptized over and over and over again. No. When you unite with him and you identify with him and you live into a life of being with Jesus Christ, you start to live as the second Adam. You start to live that Abraham covenant that was passed on to Jacob that should have been the twelve, that should have been the numerous as the stars and the seas and the sand and the seashore. You become that, the twelve being the disciples, one of which rejected him, betrayed him. The other of which ignored him, denied him. They lived into the first Adam business. They did all that business. But in the resurrection, they knew that death was beaten. And in the resurrection, I now know that death is beaten because, oh, do I deserve death. But in Jesus Christ, he didn't. And so I did. He took it. So I don't have to. Does that mean you won't die? No. But what it means is, is that that separation, which is what true death is, is what real death is. All you have to do is talk or read the stories of the martyrs to realize that this earth right now is not what God intended. It's still an earth that is affected by the second Adam, or for the first Adam. But soon, much like David, the world will fully know that David is king. All of the promised land needed a period of time whenever David was anointed king until he became king of all that land. There was a period of time when people needed to learn this and understand that and even believe it and trust it. That is where we're at. And so, yeah, your body dies. But your separation from the Father that happened way back with the first Adam doesn't. You will not taste death in that. That is where that exchange happens. Jesus tasted that death for you. All of the Bible leads to that reality. Bloody and gruesome along the way. But there will be a day when that won't happen. When all effects of the first Adam's sin will be dead. So let us read this, this text again and start over from the end, beginning. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Brothers and sisters, you will be raised in the body like Jesus was raised in the body. Guess what? He got to hug his friends and he got to eat fish 
and you, got to, you get to live that life. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. What we are doing right here is stupid, by the way, if Jesus wasn't raised. This is what he means by this. Paul, in Corinthians, is putting every single stitch of weight upon the resurrection. And what that means by the fact that God it became man and then is ascended as a resurrected Lord over all. He puts all of it. He says, what we are doing here is futile. If death isn't beaten, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those all also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. We have no hope about those who have, what did I say about last week? I said those who have died. Easter should be a celebration. A tremendous celebration. Not of the fact that your sins have been forgiven, but the fact of the hope that those you love will be with you. And you will be with them. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised to the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. The goodness. The goodness. Not of what was expected from the first Adam, but what is hoped for in full in the second Adam. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so as in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after, to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. You see that last part? Israelites, with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, never really fully got into the promised land. They were underneath the power, not just the sin, power of sin, the power of Rome, the power of Greece, Greece, whatever it may be. Go back to 24 again. Then comes to the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. That's good news. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That means there will come a day when death of the body won't exist. And it will happen in the resurrection, but it will also happen when he comes again. That might happen five minutes from now. May not. May not. I won't ever tell you that. But what I will tell you is, is he is coming. And he will redeem all things to himself. And restore all things to the way he intended it to be. And that is the good news that you have with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the beginning of the curse has no power over Jesus and it has no power over those who are in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for a very powerful story of actual people living into you, living into a salvation history that is a promise as much as it is your act. So Lord, let us live as resurrected, without sin in us, we can live that right now. We have power over sin by the power over death that you have given us by your resurrection. So send your spirit. It's in your son's holy name. Amen. Let us uh, read what it is we believe. Not just about the resurrection, but about the full breadth of width of our faith by what the Apostles' Creed says. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven. I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God.
He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. 